0: Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at fccindianapolis.com. Occasionally, I I find a new speaker, writer, or or somebody that speaks about the word a lot, and I ran across a guy I had not heard of. He's an Anglican priest in Great Britain, and um, anyway, I've been listening to a lot of his sermons, and I've got one of his books that I'm reading through on Paul right now, and he stirred up a lot of thoughts in my head. And but the primary thought that I've stro- I've, I've, I've 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 i haven't really struggled, but I've I've looked at all of the things that he's approaching this subject in this book about Paul, and it's about righteousness, and is, is, is righteousness imputed or imparted? And by that, <coughs> I mean to impute something is like, um, it's a court hearing. God is our, our judge, and the enemy is our, our um, prosecutor, and I have to understand, in, in a Hebrew court, there were no prosecutors. You know, right now we've got, um, there are federal prosecutors there that are preparing cases to bring charges against federal people that they believe have broken federal crimes. We have state prosecutors, county prosecutors, every level of our nation. We have men, women that are are, um, uh, studied in the law, they're lawyers, and, and they are, investigating, using the police and other people to investigate crimes. And they're laying out a case to accuse people of of law-breaking. That's not how it worked in a Hebrew court. In a Hebrew court, if, if Jerry and I have a dispute and Jerry thinks I have wronged him, Jerry is the prosecutor. And Jerry comes to the court to bring a charge against me. So when, when, and when, when we talk about imputed righteousness, we're talking about the judge, in our case the judge is, is God, having the accuser, and for us, in every case, the accuser is the enemy, it's Satan, Lucifer, he is the accuser of the brethren, and he's standing declaring the, the, to the judge, they're sinners, 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 wrongdoers, deserve nothing, And then we stand in the bar, and we're going to be judged. We can present our evidence. And and this is what, if you go into um, the last few chapters of of the book of Revelation and look at the white throne judgment, that's what's going on there. And the only real defense that any of us have is to plead guilty. He's right. (laughs) I've done everything he's accused me of. But, here is my defense. It's the blood of Jesus. That's all I stand on. Jesus gave me his righteousness. And the judge says, that's yours. Now, if, if you read in the book of Romans, it says that, that in, in chapter 4, that Abraham believed God And God, and I don't know that it uses this word particularly right there, but it says that God imputed righteousness to him. God said, Abraham, I see your faith. I'm judging you to be righteous. Did Abraham change? No. He had a promise of a coming Messiah that this Messiah, the branch, the seed, the Old Testament uses all kinds of words to describe Jesus coming and taking flesh. That I have faith in that Messiah that when he comes, he will pay the price and I will be declared righteous. I'm, I am declared righteous right now. And God looked at him and said, I, I see you as righteous. But it had no effect in Abraham's life. He was not born again. For us, we are in a different situation we not only have the faith of Abraham, we, we hear and we see the story of salvation and we believe it and God says, okay, I'm imputing righteousness to you. I declare you righteous. But now since we are post-resurrection, Jesus went ahead. He has conquered death. He's conquered sin. He's conquered sickness. He's conquered all the works of the enemy. Since that has accomplished And Jesus is now Lord of the world, this world. Now, Jesus has always been Lord. That's why when he walked the earth, he had power over demons. But if you notice, every demon that Jesus ever faced would would speak to him and said, Are you here to torment us before the time? There is some kind of of covenant that, that God had made with Adam that, um, Lucifer inherited when Adam fell and made Lucifer his lord. The, the devil has a right to be here up to the time when Adam's lease on this planet runs out. We don't know exactly when that is. I don't know if, if, if God will, will wait till a short period after that lease runs out. But until that lease runs out, the devil still had a right To be here because he was the God, little g, of this world. That's why when he took Jesus into the wilderness, he said, If you will bow your knee to me, I will give you all of these things. If he had not had control over that stuff that he was offering Jesus, that's not a genuine temptation. So he had control of it. But Jesus conquered all of that. Took it back. But the devil is still here. Now, since we're post-resurrection, Jesus not only imputes, gives us the legal right to righteousness, but he recreates us. When you exercise that faith of Abraham, there is more happens to us than happened to Abraham. That righteousness is not only imputed, but it is also imparted. And to impart means that it becomes a part of us his light, his righteousness, his power, his nature comes into us and we become brand new creatures. Paul said that in the letter to the Corinthians. He who is in or or is in Christ is a new creation. We are brand new. And that creation is sealed by God. So that's our standing. I said all that to to reemphasize when you go back to Acts 4, which is where what we've been praying, it's the key, I believe, it's the key to to revival in our world. But remember, the world will never experience revival until we experience revival. Revival always starts with people, with believers. If we don't get revived, and by, by revived, I'm, I'm not talking about, well, there are, there are two schools of thought in this, and it's, it's, it's not really theologians that do this, but it is ordinary people Misinterpreting some sermons, but sometimes not misinterpreting, uh, I was raised in a, a a Baptist household where you got born again, and if things didn 't work out well, you had to go you went forward and you rededicated you tried harder. That was the message: Put your trust in Jesus, and life 's hard, and when you need help, try harder. work harder do this my son in law was raised in assemblies of God and His experience was, you get born again, but during the week, if you sin, you've lost your salvation, and you come back the next week, and you go forward, and you get saved again. His own testimony, he got saved thousands of times as a child. Well, different theologies, the result is the same. You both live in defeat. I lived in defeat. Because I thought that, that the whole essence of the gospel was God's out here. He has saved me. I'm going to make it to heaven because that is the ultimate aim of salvation. Am I going to go to heaven or am I going to go to hell? And that, has, that, that is a result of salvation. It's not the point of salvation. Jesus didn't save me and leave me here so that I could live eternally with him in heaven. He he saved me and changed me so I could bring the light of the gospel to a dead and dying world. That's why we are here. Not to get to heaven. For one thing, we're already seated in heaven. Paul said we're seated with him in heavenly places now. Heaven is my home. It's my residence. That's where, where I am. But I lived in defeat because I thought to live the life, just work harder, work harder, work harder, work harder. My son-in-law grew up, I've lost it, I've got to get it back. I've lost it, I've got to get it back. Same essence as far as how we lived our lives. We were just working harder. We, different theologies, result was the same. We didn't get much accomplished for the kingdom. The, the, when, in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 29, they've, the, the this earth, first church has run into problems. They're, they're being threatened with death and destruction. And, and their prayer is, look on your servants. This is Acts four twenty nine. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Their prayer was, God, we are one with you. We have a commission, a co-mission. We are, this is a joint mission between God and me. And God can't accomplish it without me, because he declared, I'm not going to accomplish it without you. You are my body. You are my hands, you are my feet, you are my mouth. Jesus will not get up off his throne until he's ready to come back and consummate everything. Between his, his ascension and when he comes back, he's put us in the world to shine his light. That's our function. And that's what we need to pray for is, God, we need boldness. I can only have boldness when God starts manifesting himself through me. And God will not start manifesting himself. If you go back and read Mark 16, it said that, that God showed these signs in response to the word preached. If we're not seeing the signs and the wonders, maybe we're not preaching the right word or we're not really believing the right word, where our emphasis is work harder, work harder, work harder, do better, be better. I can't be any better than I already am. I'm a brand new creature. Well, yeah, but don't you sin? I fall short every day, many times a day. But that's not the real me. On the inside, I'm perfect. I got the Holy Spirit residing on the inside of me. My, my, my effort is not try harder. My effort, effort is listen more closely. Don't allow myself to get distracted. Think, Paul said it in Romans 12, uh, to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Through the word, I have to change how I look at myself and how I live life because it's not me, but Christ in me is how I live. Now we, we looked last week, and, and I know I'm, I'm, this is just how I am, sorry. My nature, I, I start, I, got a th- I had a 30 second introduction, it's taken me 12 minutes to get 30 seconds of what was in me out. But we looked last week at, at, at the, the letter to the church at um, uh, Philadelphia. And and Jesus was was describing this church in 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 Revelation, uh, in in Revelation three. He his first address was to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right. And and he he says certain things. Does it in all seven messages. And I want you to keep in mind that there are seven messages to seven churches, because we're going to see that number crop up over and over again today. But the 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 point of it is we saw in in, in verse or chapter one of revelation the point is you, you the, the whole book of revelation is about it says it's the 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 Greek says it's the apocalypse of jesus apocalypse has be gotten this weird non biblical meaning to mean um this horrific war that's going to end. All the activities of the earth when Jesus comes back. That's not what apocalypse means. Apocalypse means the unveiling. The apocalypse is, is, I have something here and you cannot see it. You don't know what's in my hand. But I apocalypse it, I uncover it. And now it's visible to the world. That's the apocalypse. That's the revelation. That's why apocalypse is, is translated revelation. It's the revelation of Christ. It's us finding out what's covered up on the inside of us. And that is, that if you want to know, do we have a problem with Christians in the world? Here's the problem. People can't see Christ because of us. Christ is is, is covered by my flesh. If you could, and this is what, if you go into, into the letter to the Corinthians and you see, uh, uh, paul describing the different um, manifestations of the spirit the different ways that god wants to manifest himself and show forth himself one of them is the discerning of spirits that literally means to uncover and recognize if if we could manifest that let how you know pray for someone have the discerning of spirits to look at me what you would see was my body would get translucent and you would see the spirit of God and my spirit joined together on the inside of me. That's what it means to, to see. But we don't allow the world. It's the old saying. There, there really are, there. as far as the world is concerned, there's three of me. There's the you that I allow you to see. That's the one that gets up, takes a shower, shaves, and dresses up. Because I want to put on a good front. You know, the old saying... Um, dress for success how you dress and how what you present to the world will a lot of times will affect how the world looks at you but then there is is the the real me that i think of me it's my mental image of me which is never quite as good as the picture i present to the world but then there's the real me the me that jesus sees that god sees Getting my vision of me to align with God's vision of me is the key. I have to start seeing myself the way God sees me. And when I do, then that light can start shining out. And then people won't just see the the whether I'm dressed in, in a suit and a tie, or you know, if you want to be ecclesiastical, you get the, the 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 monkey suit with the little white collar that you know the the more formal churches wear and it identifies it's your badge that says, you know, I mean you you walk down the street, if you meet a policeman in uniform, you know he's a policeman. If you meet a fireman in uniform, then you know they're a fireman. You know, there are uniforms. Well that's the ecclesiastical uniform. Well we need a uniform as Christians. But that uniform is the light of the gospel that's shining out of us. Whether I'm dressed up or in my my scruffy work in the yard clothes, the light of the gospel ought to be showing forth and how I talk, how I act, how I treat people, what I say to them, what I say about myself. If if I'm manifesting the love of Jesus, then it, it becomes obvious. Now, the the um, emphasis of all of this, especially, and I'm not gonna go back and, and read through Revelation chapter three, uh, and, and even chapter one, but in, in chapter one, in, um, verse 12 and the first part of 13, It says that when John turned and heard this voice, that he looked and he saw um, seven golden lampstands in the midst of seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. So he's seeing a vision of Jesus, and in this vision, Jesus has seven lamps, and he's holding seven stars. So what I want us to do this morning, I want us to go back to the book of Zechariah, and I want us to to look at a little different picture, because the, the book of Zechariah mirrors the book of Revelation in a lot of ways. But I, I want to give you this one illustration. I mentioned earlier when we prayed about Eric Little. And I would, I would encourage you, um, you know, there are times when the, the, the Academy Awards, uh, well, i would say the vast majority of the time, the Academy Awards... They, They wouldn't know a good film if it just fell off the roof and hit them in the head. You know, I remember several bunch of years ago, I think it was Fargo, won the Academy Award. I never heard of that movie, but Gina and I just won the Academy Award. Maybe, you know, it's out on video already. Let's let's go rent a DVD and watch it. Maybe it's good. And I made it through like 20 or 30 minutes, and I thought, how in the world? This is, this is, if I was ranking all the movies I've ever seen, this would be in the bottom three. This is horrible. Where did they come up with this? And I'm, I, I'm, to this day, I'm perplexed. I have no idea what they thought was so great about this. But when, when Chariots of Fire, and I don't remember what year it won the Academy Award, it was the opposite of that. This is a little film that no one had ever heard of until, lo and behold, out of the blue, it won an Academy Award. Best picture. And to make and the reason, and I think it was God, I think God just went down and he said, okay, today I'm going to play a little game with the Academy of, of Motion Pictures. And he, he just had people tweak their, their choice and they checked that one off and they had no idea what they were doing. God just moved on them to do it. And suddenly there's an Academy Award winning film that's about a missionary who is, is running in the Olympics and his specialty is the 100 meter dash. And he is favored to win the gold medal in the 100-meter dash. The only problem is the heats in that, for that race are on Sunday. And he's a dedicated Christian. He was born on the mission field to missionary parents. He was born again. He wasn't a, a Sunday morning Christian. He was a seven-day-a-weeker. And he said, I cannot compete on Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. He's in the Olympics and everybody around him said, Eric, come on. It's one heat. Just go out and, you know, just run enough to get in the, the finals. It's not on Sunday. And he said, no, I can't do it. I won't do it. So they moved him to the 400 meter. Now, if you've ever run track, there's not a more brutal race in the world. 100 meter race is 100, not 100 meter, 400 meter. It's once around a track. And it's a full blown out sprint. I've tried it, and I wow, no, it, by the time I'd get halfway around, I thought I was dying. It's tough. He did it. He won a gold medal in it. was not his specialty but w- this was nineteen twenty four in the Paris Olympics. He won this medal, but when he when he finished that, he immediately i mean it wasn't much different. It was a little different back then. But he, because of his fame, having this gold medal, he had all kinds of opportunities before him. He could have gone to wor- work, made a lot of money, done different things. He had the, the, the world was open to him. The business world was open to him because he was an Olympic gold medalist. And what did he do? He went back to China, went to the mission field taught as a, as a teacher in a school in China. And this was in 1925 when he went back to China. Now, he took some furloughs. They, missionaries back then, occasionally, you just got to get off the mission field. You got to come home. They had enough sense back then to realize, and, and travel was a lot different. You didn't jump on an airplane and eight hours later, you're, you're from China back to, you know, Great Britain. You jumped on a boat and a couple of months later, you got home. But they would send people on furloughs for a year. Go home, rest. Recharge your batteries. It's not a bad idea for everybody if you can if you can afford it, and that's part of the problem. You need time to t- to step back and rest. But he, other than a couple of years of furloughs, he spent the rest of his life. and when when Japan invaded China during World War II, At the very end of the war, he ended up in a civilian internment camp, and if you know anything about the Japanese internment camps, they they worked you and they barely fed you enough to keep you alive. Well, he ended up dying like three months before the the camp was liberated. He had a brain tumor, which is technically what he died of, but he also had, he was malnourished. But the testimony of all of the people, and these were mainly Christian Westerners who were missionaries in in China who got stuck in this camp. So he's a Christian amongst Christians, but they're all under duress. But he was the one that kept peace. Everybody else divided up into cliques, our denomination, our group, here, there. They all had their own, and he walked amongst all of the groups and brought them together. When they had conflicts, he was the one that, that, that came together and brought them together. But here, here's what, what drew me to him. I saw a picture of his headstone. They, the years later, I think in the sixties, they went back into China, um, at some point and found his grave, dug up his bones and took him back to his, his bones back to Great Britain and reburied him. But on his, um, tombstone, this is the inscription says the light is not extinguished. The light is out because the dawn has come. We have to understand that we are the light of the world and the world is dark, but we even when we don't you may not see my light hopefully you don't see my light because the light of Jesus is so bright that you don't see my light you see his light that's what eric little then when you pick out the inscription on your, your headstone that's the, that's what you consider important for him the most important aspect of his life was let my light shine let the light of Jesus shine out of me. Now, in Zechariah, and I, I wanna, I'm going to start in chapter 3, and I'm going to try to go through this quickly, because I've, I've, I've taught through Zechariah verse by verse. It took me like three years, so there's a lot there. I'm just praying. You can pray with me, agree with me. I don't get stuck, because sometimes things hook me, and I, I want to run the rabbit trail. But in, in chapter 1 and 2 of Zechariah, you see three phrases used a lot in those first two chapters. And, and I, I see all three of them in um, um, chapter 1, Zechariah 1, verse 14. It says, The angel said to me, Shout this message for all to hear. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. That's the first phrase. Everything in Zechariah is being taught and, and, or spoken from the standpoint that I am the Lord of heaven's armies. This is the Lord of hosts. This is not the meek and mild and gentle Jesus that sat and said, bring the children to me. This is not the meek and mild Jesus that they brought the woman with, with uh, that had been caught in adultery and he wrote something in, the, in the, the dirt and all of her accusers fled and he got up and he did not accuse her, but he said, go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven. This is the Jesus here speaking in Zechariah, they went to the temple, sat down, wove a cord. It takes time to weave a cord. He, he was making a whip. Got up, kicked over tables, hit people, yelled at people. And keep in mind, Jesus is a perfect manifestation of God's love. As loving as the Jesus who accepted the children, the, 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 the Jesus that accepted this woman caught in adultery, he was walking in just as much love when he cleansed the temple that was still an act of love we get this idea in our heads because we've been we've been brainwashed that love is always mamby pamby oh it's okay it's okay you know no sometimes it's not okay i I had more than one confrontation with with my children when in their late teenage years and and um gina was usually the gentle one i was the stern one Where, you know, in one particular situation, my son had done something really stupid. And um, she said, honey, it's okay. Because he was in apologizing. And I just, I had to say it. I said, no, it's not okay. What you did last night was not okay. You risked your life and you're too stupid to even know it. And you have to be confronted with your stupidity so you don't repeat your stupidity. And I did it in love. There were times when uh, there was a, one particular incident where both of my kids just ran across the street and I watched them. And a car, I mean, he, had, he, he was putting skid marks on the road to keep from hitting them. Let me tell you, the, 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 my neighbors thought I was berserk because I was screaming. I, the fear of God was in them. That wasn't the fear of God, it was the fear of me. They thought I was going to kill them. Why? Because I saw them dead in the street. I mean, it was a miracle. That 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 car did not hit him. This guy had to work hard not to run into them. And kid versus car, kids lose every time. An act of love was to just chew them out to the point that even today, my son's 40-some-odd years old, he remembers that butt-chewing vividly because I wanted him to remember that. I want this burnt into your brain. This is the God that's speaking here. I'm the Lord of heaven's armies. That means I'm coming to make war. But notice what he says. My love for Jerusalem and Mount Zion is passionate and strong. When the Old Testament talks about Jerusalem and, and, and um, Mount Zion, there are a lot of ways you, you can interpret those two, those two things, two references. In Zechariah, mostly, and, and I would not, don't push this metaphor too far. But, but the primary interpretation here in Zechariah, when he talks about Jerusalem and Mount Zion, he's talking about the Jews and the church. Mount Zion is the church. Jerusalem represents the Jews, the Jewish nation. And so it's the first two chapters. He is, God is declaring, I'm bringing you back out of captivity. You've been in captivity. I've punished you, but it's over with now. And then he comes to Zechariah chapter 3. And in Zechariah chapter 3, he is not dealing with, with the nation as a whole. He's dealing with, with the, the high priest who represents the nation. And I'm going I'm to read through this, and, but I want to stop and just pick a few points. Verse 1 of Zechariah 3. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. I don't think we have it, but it'll follow fairly close with the New King James says, then the angel showed me Yeshua, that is um, an alternate spelling of the Hebrew name Joshua. This is not the Joshua of going in and taking the promised land. This is many, many years later. He's the high priest. He said, the angel showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. The accuser, Satan, was there at the angel's right hand making accusations against Yeshua, and the Lord said to Satan, I, the Lord, reject your accusation, Satan. Yes, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. This man is like a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire. You go read the the little epistle to Jude, or from Jude. This is is the image that Jude has when he talks about snatching someone from the flames of the fire, despising even the smell of their sin. God is standing to the high priest of Israel and saying, I reject your accusations. I've snatched him out of the fire. And then it describes Joshua. It says his clothing was filthy as he stood there before the angel. So the angel said to the other standing there, and this angel, there are different interpretations, but most commentators will tell you this is the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus. The Father is standing as judge. It's Jesus that is standing there speaking uh, for the judge and for us because we are representative there, represented there of, um, of Joshua. He says, Take off his filthy clothes. And turning to, to Joshua, he said, See, I have taken away your sins, and now I am giving you these fine new clothes. Then I said, They should also place a clean turban on his head, So they put a clean priestly turban on his head and dressed him in new clothes while the angel of the Lord stood by. Then the angel of the Lord spoke very solemnly to Joshua and said, This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. If you follow my ways and carefully serve me, then you will be given authority over my temple and its courtyards. I will let you walk among these others standing here. What God, what Jesus is saying to him, I have, the, the new clothes represent his actions, but they also represent his actions due to the nature that God, the forgiveness that God is giving him. But the turban represents a changed mind. It's, it's Romans chapter 12, renewing your mind to think about who you are in light of what Jesus has done for you. And he's saying, if you will walk this out, I've remade you, I've put this in you. If you will start walking this out, you'll be able to walk in authority around my temple. And by walking in authority around my temple, you will, it will place you in heaven's courtyard. Because the whole point of the temple, and, and you see it even really more um, um, in the um, tabernacle. Because the tabernacle was a better representation of what we see in heaven than the temple in Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem is in one place and everybody has to come there. The tabernacle was mobile and God took it to wherever it needed to go. But where where the tabernacle was, was where heaven and earth came together. Where God manifested what he had in heaven and brought it into the earth and allowed it to affect the earth. The difference was, will we come and allow that to change us. Now, we're, we're in a whole different state. With the tabernacle, they had to come in. They had to make the sacrifice. It's already done for us. It's the blood, it's the blood of Jesus has been spilled on that altar. They had to clean up with the, 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 the uh, brass altar or the brass laver. It was a, just some point you washed. Well, we are washed by the washing of the water of the word, which is out of, out of Ephesians. And then we went into the holy place the first place where God started to manifest himself. We found the written word, the showbread. We saw the, uh, the light of the gospel, which is the menorah. And then we saw the prayers of the saints, which is the altar of incense. And then there was a, a, a big, thick curtain separating us from the manifest glory of God, the Shekinah glory. But when Jesus resurrected, that, that curtain was parted. It was ripped forever. And the Shekinah glory is allowed to come out. Why? Because that's the light that's on the inside of us. And that's what, what Zechariah is talking about here. He said, if you will, will just walk and follow my ways and carefully serve me, then you will be given authority over my temple and its courtyards. Now remember, this is talking about a man that's unregenerate. He's not born again. To us, we've been given that authority. Jesus said and in every description of the, of the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. You go, therefore. I'm giving you my authority. I'm giving you my name. I'm giving you my spirit. I'm giving you my glory. You go and do my works. This is what Joshua, or or Zechariah, was was prefacing here. But look at verse 8 and 9. Listen to me, O Joshua, the high priest, and all you other priests. You are symbols of things to come. Soon I am going to bring my servant, the branch. That's talking about Jesus. Future tense to Zechariah, past tense for us. But notice how it describes him. Now look at the jewel I've set before Joshua. A single stone with seven facets, I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and I will remove the sins of this land in a single day. And on that day, says the Lord of heaven's armies, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit with you peacefully under your own grapevine and fig tree. He describes this branch, which is a description of Jesus. He also describes him as a fine jewel with seven facets go back to revelation the seven candlesticks it's another way of describing the church we are god's jewel Uh, 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 the gospels describe us as the pearl of great price which is actually even a little better description of the church because a pearl is something that irritated the oyster (laughs) we were an irritant to god some of us still are occasionally but what did God do? What did the oyster do? He started laying down that mother of pearl and laid down and smoothed it out. When, when you, you look at the picture in Revelation of the gates of heaven, they're pearls, individual pearls. You cut a pearl in half, you see the layers. It's not just one of us, it's all of us collectively. But, but Zechariah describes the church here, or Jesus as a, a jewel with seven facets. The Jesus, the jewel there, is not the man Jesus. It's talking about his body, us, the body of Christ that's in the earth. We are a jewel. Why do people buy jewels? Well, they're valuable. No. If they were dirt cheap, in fact, diamonds would be dirt cheap if it wasn't for the fact that there's a, a monopoly of one company in the entire world that can sell diamonds. Without that monopoly, diamonds would be cheap, dirt cheap. They are abundant in the earth. Why do people want to, want to uh, have diamonds? Because when you shine light on a diamond, it sparkles. That's what the facets, this jewel is the church. It's the body of Christ with seven facets so that when you shine the light on it or the light shines out of it, it comes out and sparkles and dazzles and is beautiful. That's our role, to be the representation of Jesus and be his beauty in the earth. It's a whole reason that we celebrate Christmas because the, the, the second person of the Godhead came and joined himself with humanity for all eternity, by the way. Jesus will, 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 will the, the son, the second person of the Godhead, will never leave the body of Jesus, Ever. That's quite a sacrifice right there. Then we get to Zechariah 4. It says, Then the angel, verse 1, who had been talking with me returned and woke me as though I had been asleep. What do you see now? he asked. I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl of oil on top of it. Around the boil are seven lamps, each having seven spouts with wicks. And I see two olive trees, one on each side of the boil. Or bowl. Then I asked the angel, "What are these, my lord? What do they mean?" So when when Zacharias sees this next vision of heaven, he sees seven lampstands, a, a, a menorah with seven branches. Again, it's a picture of the church. But what does he see? He sees two olive trees. We're going to read on here in a minute. Those two olive trees, and there are. There are a thousand different metaphors you could use to describe those two olive trees. The one I hear, see, used most often is it's the Jews and the Gentiles together. Jesus says, in, in through Paul, he said, Now in the church there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's one new man. We are that one new man. We are the body of Christ, but we have our Jewish roots and we have our Gentile practices. They've been brought together. There is no difference it's, it's the, 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 the difference in, in people is not your racial background. Who cares? All you're talking about is a tiny little sliver of your outer skin. It's the only difference. You're not talking about your educational background. because It doesn't matter whether you have nine PhDs or barely have a, 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 an eighth grade education. When you stand before God, he's not going to ask you, how, how, how many classes did you take in school? He doesn't care. It's not how much money you make. Are you rich? Are you poor? It has nothing to do with any natural thing. What it has to do with is the blood of Jesus. But, but even more than the blood of Jesus, because if you, especially you go back and look at the, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. What did the Samaritan do to the wounded man? We are that wounded man satan has robbed us and beat us and left us for dead and all the religious people walked right past us because we don't want to get our hands dirty because we can't serve god if we get down in the muck with you it'll make us unclean oh god save us from religion but the samaritan came by and what did he do he poured in the oil and the wine the oil is the representation of of the holy spirit and the power of the spirit the wine is the blood of jesus He poured them in and healed that man. And then he took him to the inn. And this is the exciting part. What did he do? He said, let him recover here. I'm going to give you three days rent for this hotel room. We'll pay for three days. And if he needs anything you provided, I'll pay you back when I come back in three days. Keep in mind, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. He's talking about the the absolute coming back of Jesus after the millennial reign in 3,000 years. He's going to come back for his church in 2,000. Jesus is coming back. But until he physically comes back, we are his representation here. And then, let's go back up. Verse 4. Then I asked the angel, What are these, my Lord? What do they mean? Don't you know? This is Jesus talking to Zechariah, and he's surprised. Don't you know, Zechariah? No, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. It is not by force nor by strength, but it is by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Nothing, not even the mighty mountain will stand in Zerubbabel's way. Zerubbabel is building, trying to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple in, in Zechariah's day. It will become a level plain before him. And when Zerubbabel sets the final stone of the temple in place, the people will shout, May God bless it, may God bless it. King James, New King just says, Grace, grace to it. What's, why does he say this twice? Why does he say grace, grace? Because it's two trees. It's the Jew and the Gentile. It, it's, it's the smart and the dumb. It's the beautiful and the ugly. It's the fat and the skinny. It's the educated and the uneducated. It's the dirty and the clean. It's any combination of humanity you want to to make your reference with. We are those trees. And we are pouring the oil of the Holy Spirit comes out of us to go into the lamp so that the oil can burn to bring the light of the gospel to a lost and dying world. Again, the emphasis is not on us. The emphasis is not even on the light. The emphasis, for sure, it's not on the lampstand. The emphasis is all, where is the light and what is the source? What's the fuel for that light? Because it, when you run out of oil, you'll get a flame for a little while. <clears throat> but if you've ever noticed what happens if, you, if you're burning a candle and you let the wick get too long, The oil won't make it all the way to the top of the wick. And what happens when that happens? It starts smoking. It starts stinking. What do you do? You go trim off. There are things that that the oil's not penetrating in us. And so those parts of our lives are sputtering and smoking and giving off a stink. And we need to trim them off so that it's only the oil that's burning on the inside of us. And that oil gives off a pure light. And here's the great news. We're, we're celebrating Christmas. The Jews are celebrating Hanukkah. Hanukkah originated after the Maccabeans revolted against uh um, the, the Greeks, and when they when they finally drove the Greeks off, they only had a little bit of oil to light the lampstand. And they couldn't, they had to make new oil, and it took like eight days to get that oil made properly and get it get it um. Um, sanctified and set apart and they didn't have an eight-day supply of oil but the priest said light it anyway and we'll trust God to keep it lit till we get fresh oil and what did God do he took a day or two's worth of oil and burned it for eight days I had a missionary friend lives here in Indiana as uh, a missionary to the Choco Indians in Panama When They they didn't use a lot of natural sense, they went, they weren't prepared for everything they needed to do, they had two or three small children, I forget now, they're living in in Panama City, trying to get their mission work, because they're out in the Darien jungles where they're going, so they had to live in the city and go out there, you can't just live out there full time, these people lived in a stone age existence. Well, as they're trying to do all this, they they were like most missionaries, people had pledged support, and when they got on the field, the people forgot about them out there and quit sending the support, so all of a sudden their money dried up. And they ran out of everything. And they were out of food and had no money to go buy food. So what did they do? They just they made an Irish stew. Take everything in the refrigerator, put it in one pot, we're cooking up a big bowl of this. And when they looked at what they had, it's like, yeah, I don't know that we can all eat. So here's the deal. We're going to fit, fill the kids' bowls and feed the kids. And after the kids get full, whatever's left, we'll eat. But we're, we're not letting the kids go hungry. And so they filled the kids' bowls, set them before them, came back, the pot's got food in it. And so they filled their bowls, went sat down and they ate, they filled, and they came back to wash the pot, and the pot's got food in it. So they put a lid on it, and they stuck it in the refrigerator, and they got up the next morning, they got that up. This is our breakfast, kids. I know this is a little boring, but don't complain about the manna. And they had breakfast. And when they got done filling all the bowls, the pot was empty, they went and sat down, and they ate, and they came back to wash the pot, and the pot had food in it. And they did this for like two weeks, until one day, they, they they sat down and they ate, and when they went back to look at the pot, the pot was empty, and they had to wash the pot, and they thought, well, okay, Lord, don't know what's going on now. And within an hour or two, somebody knocked on the door, and it was a postman who had had a, a letter that had gotten misdirected in the mail, and they brought it special delivery, and it had a check for thousands of dollars to cover their expenses because this person was one of their main contributors, and he had forgotten to send a check for a while, so he wrote a letter of apology, but wrote a big check. He said, I missed, so I'm doubling up and tripling up to show you I'm sorry. And they went out and went to the market and bought food. That's exactly what happened with Hanukkah. It's exactly what happens with us. Our oil supply is is inexhaustible. The brighter the light shines, the more oil that comes. But it comes from the two trees, the, the, the sources. It says in verse uh, the end of verse 10, the seven lamps represent the eyes of the Lord that search all around the world. These lamps, we are, are part of God's work to search out the lost and the dying. And then it says, Then I asked the angel, What are these two olive trees on each side of the lampstand? And what are the the two olive branches that pour out golden oil through two golden tubes? Don't you know, he asked. No, my Lord, I replied. Then he said to me, they represent the two anointed ones who stand in the court of the Lord of all the earth. It's the two representations of God's presence on the earth. Pouring out the presence of the Holy Spirit in the lampstand so that the light of the gospel can go forth. That's why God tore the, the veil and the temple, was to let the glory out. The, the temple, the tabernacle, uh, which remember, Paul says it in, in Corinthians, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of God. We're mobile representations of where heaven meets the earth. That's why Paul said in Ephesians, we are seated with him in heavenly places. Why has he seated us in heavenly places? So we can take heaven and bring it to earth. That's our function. Take the glory of God that, that is in heaven and manifest it out through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of our words, through the power of our boldness, because Jesus is backing up everything that we say, everything that we do, unless we're foolish and we keep sowing to the flesh. <clears throat> keep in mind, and I'll, I'll close with this thought. This is um, um, 1 John 3.8 wasn't in my notes, but the Lord brought this to me. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. If I can get there. It says, um, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of Man, the Son of God... Was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. It's a little blind in the King James, and most translations are a little blind. The word there that, that's translated destroy does not ha- have our common or ordinary meaning. When I think of destroy, I think of uh, you set something, you know, you go on YouTube and you look at, at uh, you know, wartime explosions, and you'll see some, especially if you type in big, big bombs. There is one that it's, I don't know, this had to have been a 500-pound bomb. But, I mean, it's, it's this guy's filming from just a little ways off, and you see this house, and the next thing you know, you see about a quarter of a mile of debris going up in the air, and it rains down everywhere. That's what I think of when I think of destroy. I think of putting a bomb on something. A friend of, of Joe Thompson's a few years ago was setting off fireworks on the 4th of July, and he had a... Um, Um, a a mortar was these were big fireworks and it misfired and it just popped out of the tube and he thought well it just didn't light and he went and picked it up and before he could throw it it went off and it destroyed his hand there was nothing left they had to actually amputate up higher because it just shredded there was there were no pieces of his hand big enough to even try to put something together When I read the Lord has destroyed the works of the devil, that's what I think of. That's not what the Greek word says. The Greek word there means to loose, to untie. It's an old circus trick years ago when they had elephants in the circus. They would take a baby elephant, if you're going to train it for the circus, they would take a very large chain and they would tie it around one of its hind legs, and then they would tie the other end of that chain around a post or a very big tree, and they would leave this. They they would feed it, give it water. It, you know, they didn't mistreat it, but they left it chained. It could not get loose from that chain. It couldn't uproot the, the tree or the post. It couldn't break the chain, and it would fight and fight and fight and fight until one day it gave up. And they would still leave it chained for months after that because even after it first gave up occasionally it'd get a little rowdy i'm getting out of this and it'd pull on that chain and they'd realize i can't break it i'm stuck this is this is my existence for the rest of that elephant's life when they took it out they would take a little string and they would tie a string around that elephant's leg and tie it over to a a little post that they would drill into the ground and that Elephant would feel that string on its leg and it would never pull because it knew it could not get loosed. When in John, First John 3, 8, when it says that, that Jesus destroyed the works of the enemy, he untied the string. He's let it go. And most people, most Christians, to our shame, are standing there thinking, I can't get away. And we're not even tied. We've been... He destroyed the works, the fruit. The, the, the word there, it's ergon. It means the, the uh, uh, representations or the expressions of sin. It's talking about the fruit of sin. It's saying Jesus has loosed you from that. Do I still fail? Well, I'll always miss the mark because I'm not perfect yet. I'll be perfect when I get a brand new body. But, but for me to willfully sin, I never have to do it. Never, never, never do you have to bear the fruit of your, the nature of sin that's in your flesh. You have been loosed from that and called to manifest the light of the gospel to let people see it. When we say, well, I've got sin in my flesh and I just can't help it. Yeah, you can. You haven't renewed your mind to the thinking of yourself and the power you've got on the inside of you. Sin has no dominion over you. Paul says that in, in, in the book of Romans. Sin has no dominion. You do not have to submit to it ever. Now, that does not mean you can do anything perfectly. Of course, none of us do that because we are limited. But we do not have to sin, and we are called to gradually get control of that part of our lives and quit sowing into the flesh and start sowing into the Spirit to where we can manifest the Spirit more and more and the flesh less and less. If you've got a problem with sin, it's a symptom. It's It's a light on your dashboard of your life that says you're putting the wrong fuel. You're putting in the wrong fuel. My little brother, years ago, he had a, a TR7, beautiful little Triumph, oh, that thing ran so great, and it was the very first time that that, that automobiles started, they started putting diesels, and so our local little gas station had, had a, a, a pump, a new pump put in that had regular fuel on one handle and diesel fuel on the other, and my little brother had no idea that there were two different things, and he grabbed that went to fill up his little Triumph, stuck that diesel thing in his pump. He had about half a tank, but he was heading out, so he wanted to fill up. He mixed half diesel and half gasoline. And when he started that car, let me tell you what, oh, it was sputtering and shaking and smoking, and, 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 and eventually it just wouldn't run. I had to pull the tank, drain the tank, drain all the fuel lines, clean the thing. I mean, it cost him a fortune to get it fixed. The reason our engines aren't running well We're putting in the wrong fuel. We're sowing to the flesh, and we're reaping destruction and saying, God, help me. And he said, what do you want me to do? Uh, You want me to die for you? Done that. Uh, Lord, help me. Give me strength. Uh, I gave you my Holy Spirit. I gave you my name. I gave you my word. Well, give me faith, Lord. Oh, wait a minute. Let's read in Romans. I've given you faith. We keep begging God to give us things that we've already got. And He's sitting in heaven saying, Guys, I'm I'm losing a little, I'm I'm beginning to lose a little patience here. Use what you got. Start sowing to the Spirit, and the things of the flesh will just grow dim. and, And you'll lose the desire. Eric Little, he honored Christ by not running in that heat on Sunday. And God said, okay, I know you're a 100-yard dash man, but I'm going to honor you, and you're going to win a gold medal in the 400-meter dash. And he did. So to to the flesh you'll reap destruction. So to the Spirit you will manifest the glory of God. And the great thing is your life will be improved, and people will see the gospel in action. And it will bring them to Christ. Amen? So, here's, here's my last thought. And I've really waxed long this morning. When you approach Christmas, don't think of, oh, it's the baby Jesus. That's the second person of the Godhead embedded in that baby. And he only came for one reason. And that was to go to the cross. To live a perfect life. He lived a natural life. He submitted to his parents. He went to school. He worked as an apprentice. He worked a natural, normal life. No miracles. No manifestations. Until he was 30 years old. And then God said, okay, now it's time to enter into your ministry. Then he was baptized. The Holy Spirit came upon him. Why would he need the Holy Spirit? He's the second person of the Godhead. Because he didn't come to live as the second person of the Godhead. He came to live as a human. Perfect human, yes, but a human. And the only things he did, he did through the power of the Spirit as our example. So when we look and say, well, I can't do that. Jesus did that. He's God. He didn't do it as God. He did it as a man empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's why he says, I only do what I see the Father do. I only say what I hear the Father say. Could he have just manifested and done whatever he wanted to as a second person of the Godhead? Theoretically, yes. He had the right to operate in that. But he came to live the life and to be the Lamb of God. Now, when he comes back, he's coming back as the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies. And he's not coming back empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's coming back as the second person of the Godhead in his own right. And he's coming back as the Lion of Judah. <clears throat> and we will be with him, and there will be a war, but we won't fight it. And he'll only fight it with his words, which ought to tell you, words are important. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCC indianapolis.com